Hi, my name is Haig Bali, and this is the Beijing Sessions. Today, I talked to Alice Xin Liu. She's a translator and a blogger who lives here in Beijing. And we actually met at a CrossFit gym that we both go to. I mentioned this to her when we talked, but it's always interesting when you meet someone uh, in one context, which is you know in shorts and a t-shirt and sweating uh, profusely in my case, and then finding out that they have a life outside of that. Um, and Alice does a lot, uh, a lot of surprises for me anyway, about how literary translations work here in China. Uh, so we're gonna get to Alice in just a little bit. A stat I overheard last weekend, China is spending 1.8% of its GDP on testing right now. I had to laugh. I, I totally believe it. It's something that has become a big part of our lives over the last month, uh, almost like a ritual. Uh, my wife and I have been going to this place a couple of kilometers away so we can cycle there. And if you listen to the China Sports Insider podcast, which is the other podcast that I do, you'll know that there are all the signs that China's zero COVID policy is going to be here for a while. The fact that the Asian Cup, an event that's scheduled for June 2023, is not going to happen in China is a pretty strong signal, but it's not the only signal. You know, almost everyone I speak to here suggests that the Party Congress, uh, which is scheduled in October, is going to be the, the watershed moment when China's political leaders begin to open up the country. I take that with a grain of salt. I don't know how many times I heard that. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times I heard the same thing about the Winter Olympics. And of course, that just didn't happen. And actually, it got a lot tighter uh, just because of the nature of Omicron. So the question really, and the question everybody on, on, on Twitter is asking, and all my friends here are asking is, when, when will China get out of zero COVID? And nobody knows. Um, in the meantime, a lot of people I know, is it a lot? I don't know. Some people I know are leaving. Uh, if they have an off-ramp, they're, they're choosing to take it. And I'm sure that's something I'll be talking about a lot more as the podcast moves forward. Well, with that, here's my conversation with Alice. She joined me from her place in Beijing. Alice, usually I have my shit together with, uh, <laughs> with these things. And obviously right now, this is like one of those very rare times when I just do not have my shit together, uh, technically speaking. And yeah, that was like, I mean... That was an odyssey from Riverside to WeChat Audio to uh, finally Zoom. So thank you, Zoom. Anyway, let's let's start again here. How how are you? I'm good. Um, I'm getting some my exercise by running because I know you from CrossFit and CrossFit is a big part of my life. And I'm getting uh, withdrawal symptoms as the days go by. Yeah, me too. Me too. And this is this is the thing like I, you know, the thing that appeals to CrossFit to me beyond, you know, the cultish stuff, which isn't as much, you know, part of it in China, I feel like as it is in other places, I just like having people tell me what to do. And if I don't have that, I'm just I'm just not moving. It's terrible. I am so sedentary right now. And I'm just eating chocolates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Most of most of my diet right now is that so yeah, no, it's good to see you anyway. See you. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Uh, do you have a plan for, I don't know, online fitness classes or something like that? I do have like, I do have a uh, Apple fitness, you know, and I bought, okay. I bought two pairs of dumbbells. 
um, which I've used, <laughs> which I've used twice. No, no kettlebell, yeah. you know, but the, you know, the thing is like, I have, I, I live with two other people and, you know, getting up in the mornings, you can't just sort of do things when you want to do them. So you have to, you have yeah. to find your time and just the motivation later on in the day is just not there. So anyway, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's where I am now, but I was just saying before, like, it's just funny when you meet somebody in one context and then you meet them like, and you, and I just started researching, you know, I was like, Oh, way more than wall balls to this person. This is, yeah. this is amazing. <laughs> so, so just as a bit of background for people who don't know you, you're a, po- you're a writer, you're a podcaster, you're a translator. Um, you were yeah. there at the start of New Voices, where some people who are listening to this podcast might know about, probably missed a lot of things there. So, But I thought I would just start with the translation part of things. Is that, is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. Just, just sort of taking a step back. And I'm just curious about what Chinese books are being translated into English right now. I so I haven't looked into a current translation book, like the books that are being translated, because I I left translation. Um, well, I still translate, but I do more commercial work with clients now. Um, I know that, like, so China, but from the times when I was doing it, China has this uh, system where you have a um, a kind of a centralized. Um, a system of writers where they put a lot of the Chinese writers into an association called the China Writers Association. And so um, all of the writers that are sort of being translated for a Western audience, a lot of them come from the centralized system, but it also means that a lot of these systems, like a lot of the, uh, the writer association has the sub associations by each province, for example, and on province level, they will have lots of they being like the Zhejiang Writers Association or the Shanghai Writers Association will have a specific budget for translating the works of say Shanghai writers uh, like Wang Yi and all these like very famous Shanghainese writers from mostly a lot of them are in their like 50s but there are quite a few good young ones like um, Guo Jingming and a lot of these uh, really up and coming still already come up I guess writers but the, so a lot of these, so a lot of the writers that we see in translation are actually from a provincial level um, kind of project that is made possible because of government funding. Mm. So, and then these books, when they do get translated and they get picked up by publishing houses like Penguin or Tor uh, in the US and the UK, a lot of the time when you have the uh, the books being translated, it's actually very it doesn't feel like popular literature. It just feels sort of like very much Chinese literature and translation, almost like educational material or um, cultural material from a country. So that's something that um, translation has always, Chinese to English literary translations has has always tried to fix or the translators have tried to fix. Um, Most notably like the Three Body Project was a huge breakthrough. So that was only like one particular example of something that broke through but a lot of the time it really is just sort of translations coming from these projects funded by the writers association which is funded by like the cultural the culture ministry uh, in china so um right now i'd say there are probably a lot more projects like like these um where you are getting sort of um provincial level translations done so the cultural bodies can push out these writers from that from there like the famous writers of the region kind of uh, situation. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, what, how are those writers chosen to be translated? Why are some writers translated uh, and some others uh, not? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, there used to be, so when I started like literary translation professionally about 13 to 14 years ago, there was a group of us whose kind of native tongue was English. And so, uh, so a lot of these guys were living in China, they studied Chinese, um, but they were essentially expats or students of Chinese literature, but they all had come to China for other reasons, like travel or just to work, in, you know, work in your early 20s, like working in abroad. But a lot of us met at this conference that was held in Suzhou, around Suzhou um, in 2008. This, this is just the ones that, these are the ones that I know, not including the academics who yeah. live like abroad, like in the US at universities or people who are doing it for even like, you know, six decades who passed on. Like these, the people that I know, we all met at this conference that was hosted by Penguin China at the time. They were still Penguin China, the publishing house and GAPP who, who are the general administration of press and publication at the time. They've changed their name to SAFT now. It's, it's a different, different combined organization. But they held this conference for literary translation and they had um, brought in these teachers from abroad, like Hal Goldblatt, who is the Chinese English translator of literature. So, and then Bonnie McDougall, who was another um, teacher of translation. So the way that we learned translation as translators was that we were supposed to pitch writers. So if we had like a favorite Chinese writer, like some like uh, Ayi is a really good example. He's been translated or Mo Yan, who won the Nobel Prize. This is way before he won, won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, as any of these writers, we were supposed to find our, our favorite writer and then pitch them and then do a sample of a sample of their work, basically pro bono, because you don't know which publishers are going to pick it up. So the way that I learned the true translation was to find Chinese writers, which we all had contacts through just like Penguin and Gap, and then befriend the writers. <laughs> so you actually become personal friends with them. And then you sort of ask them for their own, their copyright situation with their Chinese books and novels. And you ask them if you can indeed uh, translate a sample of maybe like their most well-known work. And then you would pitch it to, uh, with your English language skills and contacts, you would try to pitch it to a publishing house in the States or in the UK. So uh, that's usually how it would work. So, so how do writers get picked? I think really the best writers that are known in China, right, uh, known in the sense that they're publishing, they're really well, they're sort of distributed either by, like I said, the Writers Association or independently it can be as well. And then maybe you sort of um, get introduced to them by working together with publishing houses or with these um, sort of official bodies. And slowly you get a sense of which writers you like and also which writers are working um, in the field who are very proactive and publishing a lot and also genre you know if you wanted to translate science fiction or mystery or fantasy and then you can argue women's lit but it depends and then you so you can go into those genres and try to find a writer that really speaks to you so, so. as a translator then you you actually have some influence there on, on what people in yeah. the west read no no you do because um like personally i try to not think of myself as too uh, much of an agent but really some people like a lot of the translators see themselves as agents hmm. um, and they are bringing in Chinese works of literature into English and so you are sort of like an, an agent 
you have out, you have some influence and the writers who you contact they often feel the Chinese writers when you contact they often feel really uh, surprised and happy and joyful because you've found them and then the people in the in the west they don't read chinese so they need somebody like you who yeah. you're able to, and now you can contextualize contextualize the writers too well, so when you were working with when you were doing literary literary translation would, would you work with the authors you know after they finish the work in, in in chinese and say well this is this is great i mean I, I love this and i think this can be translated except that you know there's there are some things here that I can't translate into English. You know, it, you just—it's sort of a structural thing that that you sort of have to change for this to work. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a common saying and thinking in translation Chinese to English that the idioms, so the chongyu, is incredibly hard to translate. You know, if a writer like uses like a Chinese idiom like siman andre, like which means like really something that's really hard to get. But that's uh, not uh, so. You have to find like the English idiomatic translation for that. But there is very hard. You have this very. There's probably none that exists. So the translator has to make the decision to work with idioms in a way that feels comfortable to her or him. So you know she might choose to completely ignore the idiom and just go with a line or two explaining what the, the the idiom means in English, or she might choose to find an English idiomatic phrase that's equivalent, or she might just completely ignore it in the in the text completely. So, so you mentioned that you don't you don't do literary translation anymore, and and, and you're and you transition over to uh, commercial translation. Um, why is that? In the ten years that uh, in the ten or um, 13, 14 years that I've been working, I sort of, uh, in, in, in Beijing, I felt like there's sort of a big explosion of the lifestyle has completely changed and there's been an explosion of more commercial uh, things happening in, in the parts of Beijing that I live in. So uh, previously I was, you know, we, I already, I always lived in the Hutongs, but it felt like life was a lot um, more sort of sim simplistic and you just sort of went... In your little bubble, but you're also living on like you know Qingdao and I don't know scraps of from like your local shop. Now, but now Beijing feels more more like a metropolis, more like Chicago or like a, a huge city where there are more like there's CrossFit and there's um, all sorts of um, activities I never bother either never bothered to do because I was so intent on being a literary translator and also being just very literary. But now my life is more like I want to explore the city a lot more. So I go into Chaoyang more. I meet more people. I want. I want to do more commercial translations. So I started getting into like translations for real estate, uh, for like uh, uh, art galleries. That's actually not too commercial, but it's kind of commercial because some of the art galleries are really big. And also, I've always done film subtitles, but I, I did it more after I realized that it was really um, lucrative and that film subtitles are really fun to do because you put them on a, like an Excel spreadsheet and you're able to do it very fast because it's all dialogue rather than literature, which is very slow and you have to convey the mood and the tone and the voice and everything that goes along with it. I don't do it too much, but I do. I am still trying to pitch a like I'm still trying to pitch a Chinese writer who I really like, who's this uh, queer playwright called Chen Sian, and I haven't finished the sample because it's you have to do it on your own time well, and on your own time. So yeah, yeah, I mean that's what I was thinking. Like you're you're basically, I mean it's 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 sort of on spec, um, and you really have to feel. I mean, some sort of if not feel. Um, confident in the writer then at least sort of think okay well I believe in this person a lot to put this effort into it 
yeah, yeah. and I think the writer actually really appreciates you for doing that you know mm -hmm. they sort of enjoy that you are that putting in all this effort when there's no re guaranteed return. I've always found that part of literary translation to be very ro like romantic in nature almost because people are, you are doing something out of your generosity and also your uh, belief in the writer and the stories. But I guess at the same time, there comes a point, at least for me, that I need to have a very pragmatic attitude to translation. It can't really be this sort of romantic um, project where you think oh I'm bringing in I'm bringing like the literature of the east to the west and it's this sort of very I mean for me it's a perfect situation but it's also over the years I've discovered it's also a very romantic situation. So one of the things I noticed in your bio is that over the last couple of years you've lectured about translation um, here in China yeah. uh, what, what what do you what is the substance of the le uh, lectures what do you what do you talk about? One of my friends from along from the first few years in Beijing he uh, studied Quinshu, uh, Kim Hunter Gordon he studied Quinshu and then he became uh, a sort of a, he studied Quinshu in China and then as a PhD student and after he graduated he became a professor and he got a job at Duke University the Quinshan campus in the south in uh, Suzhou he has his, his students are these kind of amazing uh, young very bright Chinese students who either I don't know just didn't they didn't want to go to Duke in the US or it's too expensive or they wanted the Duke education and, and Suzhou is close by. And, and so he, he lectures them about Quinshu, but he also teaches them media and art and, and everything to do with that. And so when he, uh, when I sort of, when we spoke and we decided that I could come down and give his students uh, a lecture on translation, uh, we decided that the best thing to do, and I did, I did that twice, and the sec time, second time with a different professor. But when we did that, we decided to put a Chinese text on the left and an English text on the right. And it was the first page of this novel called Northern Girls Bay Made by this writer called Sheng Ke Yi, who's actually really well known and a great writer. And so we put them side by side and Oh, I didn't put the English on the side by side, but I asked the students to translate the first paragraph of Bei Mei, and they could go up to the board and write the, their translations on the board. And then the rest of the students could then uh, look at the translation and talk about it or say what was right, what, what they thought about the particular choice of a word. So it could be like how to describe, I think the first chapter is like it's about this girl who works in the who works in Shenzhen and it's Shenzhen's developing and it's all about like this big metropolis you know this new uh reform opening era I, I think it's kind of like a really like bustling energy and then this woman's life and so there's a, there's a lot of like small town descriptions and a lot of um a very like quite flowery but quite rigid language as well and then it was also very local and so the translations sort of had to match that feel and so when you translate it's better if you find the way to translate that so if it's for example a city novel you want to try to convey it in like an urban language and oh. if it was like a rural novel then you should try to invoke evoke it in like a rural language like like if you read Faulkner or if you read any of the English language like rural writers you have to try and try and, and match it and so I think some of the students were like translating it as a pretty like rural setting or they tried to like translate it in like a sense that was really just very kind of poetic and flowery, flower laden, sort of very what they thought was literary language. But then I sort of, me and Kim, my, the professor Kim, like we, I, but 
I was there just to talk about translation. So I went in, I said, actually, um, you like you don't need to use what you think is literary language like it, because I know in your mind that literature sounds a certain way and it should sound a certain way but um, when you are translating you as long as you make it really clear and you fit it with the original which is like an urban novel and quite colloquial as well then you can sort of use any kind of language that you really feel is right and like really feel like conveys the mood and you don't have to make it sound like great like the next great novel or whatever or what have you so I think there was a lot of that and then there was and after that we after doing exercises we sort of did a Q&A and a lot of the students were and, and I did other things like elaborate on what I did with my career and kind of different kind of translation like uh, commercial and subtitle film and literature and the way they the pay structures for these and the publishing houses uh, role and like the uh, like and the free you know what you do if you're freelance or what you do if you're not freelance and all this stuff but afterwards it was like a Q&A and I think a lot of the students were really interested in literary translation as a career hmm. so you know obviously they were asking like you know can you make money from doing this and like if you like why how how would your life how does what does your life look like um what kind of um like how, how what's the progression your career is there progression why would you do this as a profession and I think it's it was really good for me to go and like see them because I thought that they really needed somebody who they could see was like a literary translator in action so I think that was the main goal is to show them a literary translator in, in action <laughs> One of the things that you you said in one interview uh, was that, you know, you talked about how important men- mentorship has been to you and, and your development. Um, yeah. who, who mentored you? Oh, um, I had a few really good mentors. Um, when I first arrived, I was working in the media and then uh, from like when I came and worked, started working in Beijing and um, uh, and then slowly I met this I don't know if you know this founder of this website called Danway D-A-N-W-E-I it's a very old old school media website that was translating Chinese articles mm-hmm. um, into English and the founder was a guy called Jer- Jeremy Goldcorn who you sure I think I think it was it was it a, was it a proto sub China no because at the time Danway was actually the biggest deal because I remember this is circa 20 0809 during 200809 all like um, many foreign correspondents i knew in china were getting their news from danway like because it was so fast and because it was a blog and most people want blogging uh because it was so new in china but also around the world and and jeremy uh decided to start a blog and because it's immediate he would translate Chinese news articles with his with help from his colleagues. It wasn't just him. He would tra- he would get all these translators. Danway is very small, so but he would get his editors and translators would translate news from the Chinese news, and they would be so up to date on all the blogs that chi- the Chinese writers and newspaper people and microblogs were big as well. That he was so up to date with all of this information and getting it translated at such a good pace that many of the foreign correspondents I knew were getting their information from Danway. And so and so slowly Danway became like the go-to source where every morning uh, during like, you know, the first thing in the news um, cycle or what have you, 
people would hop onto Danway and be like, what's the news? And I remember there were a couple of occasions where breaking news came from Danway to like a, ma- a major media out- outlet for like the a different uh, European country. And then it would go everywhere and all of right. this. And so Danway was a huge deal. And so when I was, I think around 2008, I was leaving my, my former employment and I, and I knew Jeremy from being in the same milieu, the same um, environment. And Jeremy was like, yeah, you know, if you're leaving your other job, come and work for me. And I was like floored by this because Danway was so famous and, and Jeremy was so, like Jeremy was so famous at the time. He still is, and, but he's he so well known. And then I was like, oh my goodness, like this is crazy. And then I remember um, like texting the other people who worked at Danway to be like, is it a good place to go? Is it nice? Uh, what was it like? And they were like, yeah, it's great. You know, this is what you'll have to do. And they gave me like a list. And I thought I could do that because I'm bilingual. I decided, okay. And then Jeremy's so great. And he so, so I went and I worked at Danway for, I think, about two to three years. But they were, it was like a really good chunk, t- chunk of time. But I think what's more important, rather than just going to the office and coming home for those two to three years, was that I had this deep relationship with Jeremy, which is why I, and I was only, I think I was only 22 so, so like I started really young I feel like like I, I was like only like, I was so fresh-faced and so fresh-eyed and I was like 22 or 23 or 22 or something like that and then I I realized that uh, Jeremy Goldcorn's just like this very charismatic figure in the, the Beijing arts and media community because you know he was self, he's South African but he speaks Chinese he'd, mm. he'd been in China at that point for I don't know like 15 years or 10 years or something like that and he started all these companies and he was huge and he could always had his finger on the pulse of everything that was happening in China, which is true, actually. And then just having that uh, relationship where somebody cared about your growth and cared in, in, like, a, in like a really selfless, you know, I, he, I worked for him. So it was, you know, there was an exchange of like labor and there always, there always should be in some capacity. I don't think that mentorship really works if it is just like a pure fr- friendship or, or like a something you get pleasure from like it should be like a work relationship like you should be providing some kind of service of which the mentor needs you to provide and then the the mentor sort of like for him maybe I was like younger and I had more like I had my language skills but I also had like because you know I grew up in a Chinese home and I and and London and and so like I had language skills but I also had this curiosity about like China Chinese culture and I had a lot of stuff that I could offer him and stuff that I was interested in that was maybe not his like he just knew that something about me was different so I was giving him something and he was giving me something so like I feel like mentorship really only works if you have a, a service that you're giving to your mentor and your mentor is then thinking okay this thing that you're giving to me is actually very valuable and I think it's unique to what you can offer and then the mentor then helps you open the doors with which they have the keys to because they've been in the field for longer yeah it has to be you can't just sort of text somebody or like email someone and be like hey can I you know buy you coffee or come and visit you at work or, or like shop, like you know um shadow you for a day it should it and be your mentee or whatever i feel like it really should be a very symbiotic organic process where you meet and you're like oh this person offers something that i offers me something that i really need and then the mentee is like oh yes i would like to be mentored <laughs> you know so, yeah are, are you in a position now to mentor someone 
Yeah, yeah. I one of my like when I was when I go to events and when people know who I am, I do get I get approached by young, especially women, which is really interesting. Like younger women who either want to be interpreters or translators, and I had somebody called Sue who worked in the art galleries, and she was bilingual just like me. So a lot of people who approach me actually are really similar to me, hmm. and she, you know, she was educated at one of one of like the top U.S. universities, but her family is still in China, but she speaks English in a way that most Americans speak English. I didn't know she wasn't American、uh, Chinese until she said, "I'm actually from Beijing," and and、uh-huh. like and I noticed. When younger women want to get into this profession, and they look to me, that I feel, and for me, like having a, a younger mentee is interesting because when you talk to them, they reflect back at me the values that I want to give out, and you know, you feel like you're really, I really do feel like I would open my doors if she needed it, if she needed like a, you know, like a contact, or she needed some, not just advice, but like the whole reason is so that you can help. Promote them and make sure they have a good career. So it's not just like I've opened the door for you. It、yeah. really is thinking. For example, what would the best thing for Sue would, would be? So like it has to be an actual action. It has to you know it's a real、um, dedic like a real dedication to someone's trajectory. But I think she I think so. So at the time I was like yeah I can for sure help her with like introducing her to all of the people I know like people at Paper Republic which is this. Website for Chinese to English translation, and if she needed to meet people, I could put her in touch, or even just have her come over to like parties and and that I'm that I go to to meet them and such. And I think she she looked into it and、uh, in this particular example, and she decided that it, translation just wasn't lucrative. <laughs> so she's like, <laughs> but so I did. So I did like a ton of like introductions. Your your, your your job here is done. <laughs> yeah. Yes,、yeah, so、I did like a ton of. Introductions. Yeah,、well, she was like,、um, "This is not lucrative for my for for like you know what I want to do with my life." Well,、so. how did that make you feel? I I understood completely because I think it's really like the I it's really because I got into translation so early that I'm still able to、uh, work because I have such a long、um, history of uh, like. Uh, Doing this, that I can get clients fairly easily, and the clients stay stable, and they come back, you know, season after season or year after year. So we mutually rely on each other, and my name is out there for this kind of work. And so even when I'm not courting clients, someone will have my contact in their Rolodex, and they'll, and at some point, mysteriously, I'll just get an email or a, a text. WeChat, also it's like very mysterious. But because I'm like, how do you still like, you know, how do you still remember me? And of course you remember me. But we met like maybe six years ago. But、yeah. you know, but like it surprised me that you remember me, or or because I'm someone who does this work, or you know, someone you know really well must have passed this on to you. And so I guess I should、um, think of like thank the other person. But like, but for someone who's starting out, it really isn't like a lucrative. Because no one, like three years down the line, is going to text them and be like, "Hey, are you avail- available for this big project?" But Alice, you you also really put yourself out there、uh, in in a way that I think maybe a lot of people don't. You were working on a novel, but now you're working on non nonfiction. What what? Why the change? What happened? Oh oh yeah, I joined、um, when I quit when I left Danway.、Uh, Dan- Danway was doing more consulting, and they were brought up. They were bought up by the Financial Times, who wanted them, who wanted the company to consult、mm-hmm. on like Chinese internet 
the like the habits of Chinese internet users, which was like the specialty for Danway because they were mapping basically the Chinese internet and they knew what every people were saying and what blogs to follow and who to translate and also microblogs as they came became popular uh, in like 2008, 2009. So when they switched to consulting around 2011, I left the company and I edited the literary magazine of Chinese to English translation. And as I edited that magazine Pathlight for about three years to 2014, and then and that was what sort of work from working with the Chinese Writers Association and going to meetings there and not having an office, which is okay. Um, and then um, and then after that, I was at a loss of what to do. So in like 2014, around that, I knew I always wanted to write. So I, I knew that from the the uh, moment that I was like um, like I studied literature I knew that writing was important to me and I always wanted to write about my grandma and so I attended all of these like uh courses there was like a six-month novel project run by someone in the UK and I would they did a few workshops writing workshops in the UK and I would I did a few writing workshops in Beijing with uh, Simon Van Boy who's this American British writer um and then I was like yeah, you know, you should write your novel. It's probably going to be based on my upbringing in China and uh, going to the UK and about me being like both sort of culturally and, and linguistically and but also about my grandparents. But I, so I wrote this like draft of the novel, I think when I was well, so around 2014 or 15 and it was like this thick manuscript. But then I read through it again and it, it just made no sense. <laughs> like the first draft of a novel, it was just like after I, I wrote it, I like printed it out and uh, I, I've always done that since like my first job is I write an article like at the time when I was still writing magazines I would just print it out and read it and be like oh this makes sense this doesn't make sense and then I would cross things out and keep things in and then um, I like printed out this first manuscript and I read through it and I've done that with books I've translated too. just print out the whole thing read through it and then print it out again and read through it and it takes like multiple sessions and then like my printing my printer is like my best you know favorite friend sometimes but the novel <laughs> I printed out and then I just like just made no sense and so I was like oh so obviously I need more time to because I feel like I do write fiction like I do think of myself as a fiction writer because mm -hmm. I always think about things in terms of plot and I always think about things in terms of story and I think like, when I think about writing in my head I always think about things that are like and what will be the inciting incident? What will be Act Two? What will be the ending? What will the characters would? What will they represent? What you know? What will the characters mean? And like, what will they stand for? And like, light versus dark, and all of this stuff. I always think in novel terms. So I'm definitely like a literature student mm -hmm. and a literature uh, writer. But you know, like the attempt. I feel like writing a novel it really isn't the same, or you know, similar but not the same to like translating a novel or. Um, writing an article or writing nonfiction because it really you know novels say so much about who you are in such a deep and profound level that's that's more that's deeper and more profound than like writing nonfiction even nonfiction to me is also very personal mm -hmm. but novels say a lot more I think than the nonfiction and so the novel I think um, it will actually happen at some point, but it'll just take me longer because it's more on like the subconscious level, like a subterranean level, and it would slowly kind of come up into the surface. And like it takes like I think many, many years and maybe even like a decade for everything to form. Like I thought it would take about three years or something, but like I think it actually will take like a decade for things to really fully form. And also for me to be, I, I wanted to be one of those really young writers, like, um, 
like you know you publish really young you get famous you know famous supposedly and you get like really well known but for me like I'm definitely like an older writer like I'm only getting into that groove and I'm 35 yeah I'm only feeling it now and so which I think is actually quite natural I think the myth of like this you know young incredibly young writer who there's like a, 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 a shooting star sort of thing. It's a very like mythologized and fetishized version of what a writer is. Like, I think I, I read this and now I believe it. When I was yeah. younger, I read that, uh, you know, the writer's life is incredibly boring and that you have to have great stamina and endurance and you have to have good health and you have to like, you know, have a good routine and you have to read. And although all this stuff is really true, which you never think about when you're like 21 or 22 and you think you're just going to do like a, genius work of like Dave Eggers style you're just gonna go crazy and do this genius thing so I so now I just sort of write my blog and uh, which is kind of non-fiction and I'm I'm able to write non-fiction yeah I think I can do I just don't write I don't write poetry but I think non-fiction and fiction is both pretty good for me you you posted your you I think it was your non-fiction book proposal on your blog. And and one of the things you wrote that popped out at me, I mean, two things actually that you wrote. Um, Number one was, um, I felt neither completely Chinese nor completely British. Instead, I've always been told that I am the one thing or the other. Which is which is interesting because I I think a lot of immigrants, like like myself, you know, I, I grew up in Canada, but my family was an immigrant family and I was I was both and neither. It was that kind of a, a a thing for me. And the other thing you wrote was that, but I've always been told to be good and not bad. And for some reason, the bad was associated with the Western world. Again, yeah. very similar to, you know, a lot of a lot of how I grew up as well, especially in school, like things that were foreign were bad and things that were sort of internal to our culture were, were really, really good. Is that where the theme of your your nonfiction book will be? Like, uh, what? How, how is that going right now? I put that proposal up there because uh, I um, had... I was I, I written it and I was um, going to uh, like I had a because I was because I've been in publishing in like the China specific field for so long. Um, I have friends who read my blog and they read my um, work like because I just post the link on Facebook or you know like I'll just I'll randomly I'll have the link around all my email and stuff like that. And so they'll, they'll read it and they'll be like, Alice, um, I want you to like uh, write this proposal. And I had a friend who worked who worked as a literary agent. And so she was like, Alice, I want you to write a proposal for this. And because I guess I was describing the project to her and she was like, yeah, I want you to do it. And I said, I don't have a, a template and um, I don't know how it works. And you know how it works. And so she was like, I'll just send you the template. And I was like, great, thank you. And then so she sent me the template and I... Um, looked at it and it was it was simple enough like the one you saw and then I took but I told her I said you know I'll I'll get it to you she works as a literary agent so she was like you know if this is good then I want to work on you with uh, work on it with you and I was like sure yeah that because my first time doing it so every time I do something new I just uh, I remember that I have to be you know kind and gentle with myself because it's so Mm -hmm. new for me and and I I know also in like from the writing world that it's a big deal but I also don't really get phased too much about new challenges and so but she was my friend so I felt very safe and so I wrote this thing according to I think she would want and then have the sample chapters according to what she would like uh what she thought was good I guess that she read and um but it, it didn't take me a week or two, like I promised. Like the idea that you get this um, 
sort of opportunity and this uh, new thing. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like, this is so exciting. And then you get it done and you move on to the next phase. That That's not how it worked for me. For me, it really was like, I told this friend of mine, I told her like every single sentence felt like I was like stabbing myself. Like it was so painful. Oh no, that, like, I'm sorry. I <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, oh. come home from a fitness, like a CrossFit session. I would get like one sentence done and I felt like I just like stabbed myself. And then I, because I feel like the project for me, because I wrote, sorry, when I like, when I started the blog, it because I had no creative out, like I had no creative project at the time. Sure. So I was like, I'll just start the blog and see where it goes. And this was like three years ago or two years, which is incredible, like how time has flown. And when I started the blog, I had no intention at all of getting it. I mean, like maybe the seed in my heart or somewhere was like yeah this is like gonna be great or like yeah this will be interesting to readers but like when I registered the URL and like started it there was no part part of me that was like I'm gonna pitch this someday and I'm going like I don't nowadays I don't work in this sort of that like a plus b equals c like this way just because of the creativity I've experienced in myself it's more like it's, it's not like that black and white for me like I'm most creative where there isn't a C at the end of the line being like, oh, you're doing A plus B because you want to get to C. Like that's not how my creativity works. And so for me, I was always like, there, there's something that's been left unsaid about you with your life for years and years. And you, you have to say it or it's going to make you sick or probably, and I'm really health, health conscious. And I was like, you have to do this. And I don't know why I'm doing it because everyone's going to be able to read it. And, and you also have the URL, like, you know, as part of like your public facing self so that everyone's going to read it. So obviously it's like, and I had a friend to tell me that it's like an, like a purging of everything that has happened in my life he's like because uh, I, I asked him I was like have you read my blog recently because we're really good friends and he's like yeah I have I haven't read it in a while but when I read it it was really like a purging of, of everything I was like oh that's interesting because like most people actually are like like him that my friend he writes a blog about his life in China like his life in Beijing and he'll like update his blog every time there's something that he wants to uh, analyze and articulate and then the blog itself is very kind of long form and interesting and well researched and well put together and so compared to most people's writing which is like that he's my writing is just like I had to do this or I was going to like explode in some in some way and so like three years ago I like registered URL not knowing where it would go but because I, I probably also needed like a website for a landing page for me and my and just for people to contact me and see yeah. that I'm uh, like on on their radar and, and that if I had clients they could look at it and they could uh but you know like clients can then also see my blog now which of course makes the website it's just so it's just interesting how my mind works like the creativity <laughs> side because like the, the clients will be like oh my gosh she's so vulnerable and like what is so but um but you know it's also part of who I am and so yeah, also so very like, but also very approachable I, I, think. I think so that's good because I think people expect me to be like when I was working with Duke University in the south in Kunshan, people. I think a lot of the sec the second time I went there, people expected the professor there expected me to have this sort of very official and probably quite standoffish and very kind of untouchable, you know, presence. But mm -hmm. then when he started working with me to bring me back down to Duke Kunshan to the university, 
he was like, oh, you know, she's not how I expect her to be at all. Like mm. I was like really soft and I was, you know, able to be vulnerable and I was able to take his, he was able to take the lead because he was the professor at Duke and, and I was just a guest and we had to figure out really like nitty gritty details like transport reimbursement for like all the transport and how to stay in the in the um in the university and how to get food and how to like uh, how to like orientate myself and like a lot of that stuff you'd feel like if you were able to give a lecture to a university about translation you would be like above all of these little details but for me I was like all in I was like yeah you know this is you know like tell me like how I do this and I think most people are really surprised about how down to earth and how like just vulnerable I am so I guess the fact that this stuff is on my site. It's fine. It's fine. Like, I'm fine with it. Um, and you know, it's part of who I am, so it's good, approachable, and you know, uh, friendly and stuff. So for me, so the, the answer would be like, yeah, it's going well. But from the very, very beginning, I didn't expect it to go anywhere. If that makes any sense. <laughs> I want to go a lot further, except I have to get out of here to get myself yeah. tested very, very soon. Oh, but, I, yeah. but I wanted to get, but I wanted to talk more about, you know, female representation in media in China. What, what else you're up to right now, but yeah. we'll have to do it another time. If that's, if that, if okay. you're okay to come on yeah, again. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So how can people find you right now? My blog is uh, my full name, Alice Xin Liu, A-L-I-C-E-X-I-N-L-I-U.com. And you can forward slash at blog or for slash for slash at bio and i'm also on twitter at ax liu and i'm on instagram as alice and again my full name so all the social is my same handle for all of it alice and liu and uh, ax liu for twitter awesome thanks so much alice and i hopefully see you in a crossfit very soon let's see how yeah, it goes yeah. <laughs> Thank you to Alice. I will post links to her work in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I will be back very soon. 